Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to another course in the Mythgard Academy series. Uh, this is now we're. I think this course should just about take us through the end of our uh, our third full year. Uh, we started in September of 2013, I think, or maybe it was October of 2013. It was right around there. Um, so um, anyway, yeah. It's uh, uh, it's been it's been such great fun. Uh, it was hard not to reflect back on uh, so, so many of the the courses we've done and the books we've read and discussed together. Uh, as I was thinking about the Lost Road, of course, made me think of all the other uh, History of Middle Earth courses that we've done. I've also just been rereading Unfinished Tales, which I haven't read since we did Unfinished Tales together. Uh, and of course, reading that was uh, just really full of. Uh, of of great memories uh, there too, oh yes, I apologize. Several of you, several several of you are pointing out that the uh, the chat room is not up on the the uh, Lost Road webpage, which is um, which is certainly true. Um, I uh, I would um, probably the best thing to do there is just to go back to the Dracula page, uh, which I think is still up. And uh, to to use that, I think for now, I'll try to remember to get that put up. I my apologies there, and and just for those of you who are new, um, there is a the, so the 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 way that you interact with me during the class uh, is through your go to webinar control panel. Uh, there should be a little chat uh, thing, a text entry place, um, and when you type that, I see it in real time. So that's how I'm seeing the. Uh, uh, the the comments that people are writing now, um, but if you want to talk with each other during the class, which is totally optional, but if you do want to do that, um, we usually have a chat window up on the web page. That's what I forgot. So you can go back to the Dracula page and it's there. Um, uh, excellent, Mary. So good to see you. Oh, I'm so glad uh, that you guys are able to make it. Um, uh, very good, very good. Um, and uh, Karita, I don't keep up with all the comments. I have to admit, I do some skimming, and I, I there are always times when I'll just I'll drop some of the comments and not see them all. So I always I always want to apologize to people whose comments I don't see. Um, but uh, you do get I do get a little bit used to it to to it. Um, you know, over the years that I've been teaching in this uh, uh, in this interface, and I've come to really love it. Actually, um, uh, in some ways, it creates a much more uh, a much richer and fuller kind of interaction with the students. Um, certainly, it allows me to kind of hear more from you guys than I normally would if I just had to kind of laboriously call on you one on one by one, and you had to all take turns. Um, anyway. Uh, so welcome, welcome back to uh, to another course. So we're we're doing the Lost Road, uh, the Lost Road and other writings, of course, as the Lost Road is only a small fraction of this volume, though it gives it the title. Um, for those of you who have some of people have expressed some concern, which is of course a perfectly rational concern, as we get further and further into our uh, our run through the history of Middle Earth here. Um, that is the concern. Obviously, do you know? Are the other books a prerequisite? Do I, you know, is it okay if I jump in at this point? Answer: It is absolutely okay if you jump in at this point. Can't promise, of course, that there won't, I won't make any references back to stuff that we talked about before. Um, but very little of what we say should be absolutely dependent upon that. Um, you know, my goal 
whenever we do, I mean, really any book, but, um, but, but, but even when we do these is really just to be focusing on a close reading of what we're seeing there, uh, in the text. And, and we'll be doing some comparison, of course, but, um, Anyway, you know, it's, is it possible to, you know, is, is it absolutely necessary that you have to have been in all of the other, sec, you know, sessions of all the other uh, uh, books? No, no, it's, it's not. You'll be fine. Um, okay, so uh, to start off with, I, I hope you will, um, you'll be willing to indulge me for a few minutes because I want to... Uh, uh, I, I want to to kind of bring you guys up to speed. I don't know. Some of you, I think, uh, haven't. Uh, you know, I I I gave a state of the university address for Signum recently and was announcing a bunch of really really big changes in the Signum program. And so I hope you'll indulge me for a couple minutes uh, while I pause to show you some of those things because there's a bunch of these things which I think are particularly exciting uh, for serious Tolkien fans. And if you have showed up. To uh, you know, to to watch and participate in a uh, a discussion of the Lost Road, you are a serious Tolkien fan, so you know you should uh, you should you should you should be aware of this because there are big things afoot uh, with Signum University, which is of course the parent institution of the Mythgard Institute. Um, lots, you know, over the last uh, over the last especially year, uh, there has been a lot of growth and maturing kind of behind the scenes at Signum University as we've really developed our our, our, our staff and our communications, and we've we've really begun to build uh, a really solid core uh, to move forward. And this year, um, there's a sort of uh, uh, we're finally getting to kind of the outward flowering of that in our program itself, and it's really really fun. Um, you know, the Signum University has been offered this sort of series of really awesome courses on, on Tolkien, especially, um, but on, on, you know, on other kinds of imaginative literature, other fantasy uh, 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 works and, and, and concepts, um, Germanic philology and uh, medieval literature and all that kind of thing. We've been offering, so we've, we've offered this really, this series of really awesome classes. And uh, for those of you who have been following us for a long time, you'll, you'll know that basically kind of, you know, life with Signum University to this point has been this kind of suspense over, you know, when are we going to announce what the courses are going to be next term? And, and it's been kind of a fun surprise, but it's really been a kind of semester by semester thing. Um, and that is really all changing uh, this year. So I want to, you know, we're really, we've, uh, uh, We've, we've really developed things into a, into a much more sort of cohesive uh, uh, program of study. And I wanted to kind of show you a little bit about that. This is our new website, which is pretty awesome, signumuniversity.org. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to kind of uh, give general props, of course, to our, to our website. But, of course, for those of you in this class might be especially interested in our Tolkien Studies program. So, see, we now have a Tolkien... Instead of just a bunch of cool Tolkien classes, we have an actual Tolkien Studies program uh, so that you can see if you want to... You if you've ever thought about coming to study Tolkien Studies with us, well, you can see exactly what you would be kind of getting in on. Here's some of our, some of our awesome faculty. Um... Uh, Tom Shippey, Verlin Flieger, John Garth, and also me. 
and <laughs> the awesome uh, faculty plus me. Um, these are these are the these are our sort of the core courses of our Tolkien Studies program. These are the courses that we're we're now committing. We're going to be offering these courses every two years. So it's not like oh yeah, there were these awesome courses a while back, but I missed it, and now what happens? Um, we're going to be offering these courses in a regular cycle and rotation. So if you come to to do Tolkien studies with us, you can count on taking these classes, and so you can see. Um, you can see what uh, the, the the kinds of of Tolkien studies courses you can take. Some of them are really in depth studies of the of sort of the primary Tolkien texts, like my story of the Hobbit class, which we're offering this fall. Uh, Verlin Flieger's wonderful seminar on Tolkien's world of Middle Earth. It's really her her in depth look at the Lord of the Rings. Um, the course that I took that I co taught uh, with Tom Shippey, uh, which I called Beyond Middle Earth, meaning basically all of Tolkien's writings other than his Middle-earth writings. Um, so we were looking at his, his, his short fiction, many of his poems, uh, his scholarship and his, uh, his, his Anglo-Saxon work and uh, uh, some of his essays, all, 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 all that kind of, all that sort of the other Tolkien stuff. Um, there's the poetry class that I did, um, you know, where we, I was looking at all of his short poetry, not the, not the really long stuff, like not the Lays of Beleriand, but the, the short poems, all the way from, from you know, uh, sort of a, a chronological look at those from the earliest ones that we have when Tolkien was a teenager, uh, all the way through his later revisions when he was in his 70s. And uh, anyway, the, and then, you know, there's lots of, uh, of other courses which really kind of take you in depth in a particular angle of Tolkien or a particular sort of relationship of Tolkien, like uh, Tom Shippey's Beowulf through Tolkien class, um, uh, John Garth's wonderful Tolkien's Wars and Middle-Earth class, where you really do an in-depth look at Tolkien's own experience in World War I and its connection to, uh, to, his, to his works. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with John Garth's wonderful book, Tolkien and the Great War, um, that's kind of the, 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 at, at the heart of this course, but he looks at a, at, a, at a lot more stuff other than what's just uh, talked about in that book. My comparison, uh, my sort of close comparison of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, looking at how the two of them treat when they're sort of doing some similar things or treating similar uh, topics, um, uh, how do they do it, right? And, and what are the sort of the similarities and differences between them? So uh, these are, as I said, these are our core courses. We also will be offering uh, new classes uh, periodically as well. Like this coming summer, we're going to have a new Tolkien class, which we're going to be offering, which is going to be um, uh, a, a, a class on... Tolkien in the 20th century, and not just Tolkien's own sort of take on the 20th century or Tolkien's own context in the 20th century, as John Garth was doing, but also looking at sort of the responses to Tolkien in the 20th century and the ways in which uh, uh, sort of Tolkien has kind of fit in in the 20th century, which is which should be really, really fun. And that's going to be taught by Dr. Sarah Brown, who's been uh, with us on our faculty now for several years as a preceptor, and she's going to be going to be lecturing in that class this coming summer. Um, anyway, so this is just to give you a sense of the, the, the of of sort of the scope of our Tolkien Studies program. And this, of course, is only one of our programs. We have four different concentrations uh, that we are um, that we are offering uh, at Signum uh, now. And of course, you'll be writing a thesis and doing original research with, uh, you know, it, uh, partnered with with many of these scholars that we've worked with. We have, you know, people doing uh, doing, you know, they've done work with um uh, with with you know people who have uh, 
done work with like Dimitri Fimi and and with uh, Doug Anderson and and uh, and you know a number of our, our own faculty, Verlin Flieger, of course. And anyway, it's um, it's uh, it's really cool. So yeah, Yana, they do rotate every two to three years. You can always complete the program within three years, definitely. Some uh, many most of our students, no. All of our students uh, so far have been part-time students. Almost everybody in our no, absolutely everybody in our program uh, is doing are is doing their studies with us. In addition to you know the rest of their life that they're doing, um, so that's that's quite common. And so therefore, for that reason, people often take two, three, or four years to to finish the program. But yes, you will be able to even within within uh, two years, you should be able to uh, to complete the program. And then you know they will kind of cycle around again if you miss them, you know on the, the the first time through. Um, so, and just to give you kind of a glimpse of our other, uh, of our other concentrations, again, it's not, it's not only Tolkien studies. We have our imaginative literature program, which covers, again, other fantasy, science fiction, uh, and other genres. Uh, so you can see the, uh, the courses that we have here. We have an even, uh, broader array of courses. Um, uh, things like uh, this fall, we're offering Sherlock science and ratiocination again. That's the uh, Amy Sturgis's uh, introduction to the history of the mystery genre, for instance. Um, folkloric transformations, our, our newest live class, which I'm going to get back to later on. Um, the course which Doug Anderson is teaching right now this semester, the Inklings in Science Fiction. Um, my modern fantasy classes, the Star Wars class, the Lovecraft class, uh, Doug Anderson's awesome Roots of the Mountain class, where he was looking at early fantasy, like fantasy literature before Tolkien, from like the, um, you know, the the George MacDonald uh, uh, time period, you know, up through up through Tolkien's time. Um, uh, Amy Sturgis's marvelous two semester uh, science fiction historical survey. Uh, anyway, there's just a lot, you know, the King Arthur class by Verlin Flieger. Really, really, uh, really cool stuff. Um, and uh, then we've got our Germanic philology um, uh, concentration, where you can be studying um, old, uh, Anglo-Saxon. We're introducing Old Norse this year for the first time. Um, we've got our, our Beowulf translation uh, seminar, as well as the Beowulf, Tom Shippey's Beowulf class, my two-semester Chaucer class, uh, our, our uh, philology class, the, the one that, that, that uh, Tom Shippey uh, and Nelson Goring did a couple years back, the philology through Tolkien class. Uh, we're looking at a, a follow-up to that, a, a sort of a sequel, a philology two class that we're that we're working on. Um, and uh, let's see, let's see where was I? I was here, right? Okay, and finally, um, uh, one that we've been kind of expanding out into more lately, and that's uh, what what we sometimes call courses that other people also offer, uh, namely our uh, classical, medieval, and renaissance lit classes. Um, anyway, so uh, we've got this, our new Shakespeare class, which we're doing in the fall, Shakespeare in the Middle, or in the spring, Shakespeare in the Middle Ages, which I'm really excited about. Anyway, these are our, these are our different concentrations that people can, so you can sort of enter into any of these courses of studies. You can kind of mix and match a little bit. Um, our tuition is really low, as it's always been. Um, uh, we offer courses for a fraction of the price of any other American institution. Um, our so the, the the full credit enrollment in our classes is only $575 per course um, for a three-credit class. Um, and all of our classes are at their core live and interactive. So you, you'll get to, you know, to meet and get to know uh, that your professors and really be involved in a small group discussion. Um, we do 
Um, we do also have a, uh, a, a work-study program in which many of our students participate, um, in which you can, uh, uh, if you, uh, f for sort of working and helping out on the Signum staff, you can also uh, get uh, partial or full tuition remission. So that's another thing that we sometimes do. Um, anyway, so, so, so this, and, and, and maybe you're thinking, so this is our master's degree program, our master's of arts program, and you might be thinking that I don't really need a master of arts, but um, what, uh, uh, so we, we have a new thing this, uh, this year also, which is our new certificate program. Um, so you can just, you can take the five classes for credit and get a certificate. I know not everybody needs a master's degree in language and literature, um, but if you, you know, want to absolutely cement your status as like the biggest geek around the water cooler, our certificate program is pretty awesome. Um, so again, again, it would really give you a chance to, um, uh, to 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 dig into studying some of these some of these uh, books and and works and authors that you love, um, and really just kind of enrich your understanding of these fields in a really deep way, um, but not having to go through the entire process and write a thesis and everything. You just uh, complete the certificate after um, after five. Uh, um, after five uh, courses. So anyway, that's a new option that we have that we have this this term as well. Um, the, uh, the, the these are the classes that we're offering this coming fall, uh, starting at the end of August. Um, this is the Beowulf in Old English. This is our translation course. So um, auditors can't participate in this because this is not a lecture course at all. This is 100% small group discussion as people who have taken Anglo-Saxon before. You know, we, we, we offered our intro to, to Old English to Anglo-Saxon for the first time last year, and we're offering it again this fall. Um, but this is sort of the follow-up to that. It's our, it's our Beowulf translation seminar. So, you know, in small groups with the professors, we're going to be sitting through and just translating, uh, reading our way through Beowulf uh, in the original and doing your own translations. Um, we've got the story of the Hobbit class, the uh, Sherlock class, uh, Verlin Flieger's Tolkien and tradition class, which I didn't mention before. That's a look at Tolkien and his relationship with all of those those older traditions that really influenced him so strongly. The Finnish Kalevala, the Arthurian literature stuff, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Norse tradition, um, all that, Beowulf, all that stuff. And, of course, as I said, the introduction to Anglo-Saxon. Uh, I also want to draw particular attention uh, to uh, Dr. Dimitri Femi's Folkloric Transformations class, which is a brand new class uh, that we're offering live this semester. Uh, Dr. Femi is wonderful, one of the foremost Tolkien scholars in the world, a wonderful teacher, and she's doing this class on, on folklore. And in particular, what she's, what she's wanting to do here is to look at some of the, the roots of, 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 of folklore stories and look at their development and transformation over time, and in particular, the way that they've been transformed in our modern culture, uh, especially in sort of modern stories and films. Uh, and one of the things that she's going to be really focusing on, for those of you who took the last Mythgard Academy class with me, is on vampire stories. So if you didn't get quite enough vampire stuff uh, in the Dracula class, there is another opportunity for you. Uh, you, could, uh, you could take or you could audit uh, Dimitri Femi's folkloric transformation class. Um, she's going to talk about Buffy, which I didn't get to. I, I, I didn't include Buffy in my Dracula class. Uh, but anyway, um, so this I just I encourage you to uh, to look more at this. Uh, Dr. Femi is just a wonderful, wonderful teacher. So um, strongly recommend that. 
And I would and I would just say sort of in kind of closing about that, um, if you have never tried one of our classes for credit, I, I encourage you to try one. If if you have. Uh, in the past, I know there were a bunch of people who kind of took a course once and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, sort of life has kind of happened since then and you haven't come back to it. I would encourage you to, to, to kind of try us now. A lot has changed and there's a lot of things I think you won't recognize. Uh, you know, we still have the same, the same core teaching, the same core, uh, you know, wonderful academic content. But the entire Signum experience is really, is really changing a lot, uh, has changed a lot already and is changing a lot more this year. Uh, in lots of really, really good ways. So I, I would encourage you to think about that. Think about it. Uh, think about maybe coming back and finishing a certificate, for instance. Um, now, let me just end here by saying a, a quick word uh, to our to our auditors. Uh, now, if many of you uh, have audited classes with us before, where you just you don't take the class for credit, you don't write the papers, and you don't do the exams or anything like that, you just get to sit in on the lectures, and and that's fun. There, are, of course, two things. One is that a new thing that we have we started this last year is our discussion auditor option. Um, where because a lot of auditors have always wished that they could participate in the in the discussion sections as well, the the weekly live discussions. Um, so now we uh, uh, so now we, we we have that option. It's called our discussion auditor uh, seat. So you can you can enroll as a discussion auditor. Um, but uh, but another thing. So okay. So you'll notice that with a lot of these classes. A lot of these classes, of course, are repeats because one of the things that we're really wanting to do in solidifying, uh, solidifying our program, um, is that we um, uh, we we have um, we're, we're repeating, of course, a lot of our classes so that we can really uh, promise that people are able to get the benefit of the full program that we offer. But I know that that means for those of you who have been auditing our classes that maybe you've already audited those classes before. I offered my story of the Hobbit class back in the fall of 2012. Uh, you know, maybe you'd, a lot of people signed up for that then. Maybe you were one of those who took that then and you're like, oh, man, now there, there are kind of fewer classes each term uh, that I can audit now, you know, fewer sort of new classes. And I, uh, I, I, I do understand that. I want to say two things. So if that's you, I want to say two things to you. One is there are still definite opportunities. Again, the folkloric transformations class, this is our, this is our, 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 our biggest audit class, um, uh, this, uh, this, this semester. Um, so we do, we do have, and we will continue to have, uh, new classes, uh, where we'll be bringing in new lecturers with, uh, with, 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 with live lecture sessions and, and brand new material. Um, so we will be doing that every single semester. But the other thing is that, you know, I, I, despite the fact that, you know, I, I made the choice that we, we, do need, we did need to make this change that we've made to our academic content so that we could really develop our programs, um, I didn't want to leave the auditors behind. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of leave you out. So we have a new series of, uh, of, of seminars that we're going to be offering um, because we want to keep providing stuff uh, for you all. We want to we want to we want to be able to 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 continue enabling you to um to, to really dig into things as, as auditors always have uh, been able to do. Um so, so I'm going to be announcing the first one of these very soon um the the registration and everything um for the first of our new series of seminars which I'm calling Tolkien's New Works. Uh so we're going to be doing uh, with uh, with uh, it, uh, great scholars from around the world, uh, we're going to be doing these sort of in-depth looks at these 
the, the, the works that Christopher has been publishing over the last, you know, five to ten years. Um, so we're going to have a seminar on uh, uh, A Secret Vice, which was just published, um, and very recently, in the last week, published in America, finally, um, edited uh, by, uh, by uh, uh, our own, uh, Signum's own Dr. Andrew Higgins and by Dimitri Femi uh, together. And the two of them are going to are gonna lead a seminar on A Secret Vice. Uh, it'll be, a, I believe, a three-part seminar, so th- three different weeks, like a Mythgard Academy class, but three weeks long. Um, and it will be, it will be, you know, it, it will be run by Dr. Higgins and Dr. Femi, so they can they can give you sort of the inside scoop on that work. Um, we're also similar, similarly going to have uh, a series on uh, the fall of Arthur. We're going to have a series uh, on uh, Tom Shippey has agreed to do a seminar uh, on Tolkien's Beowulf uh, with us, looking at specifically the, the the Tolkien's Beowulf edition that was published a couple years back, um, and uh, all of Tolkien's materials in there. Uh, uh, Verlin Flieger is going to do a session on the Kulervo, which was just published last year. Um, anyway, so that's um, that's that's all the. That, oh, and oh, and I, I'm 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 hoping that we're going to also do a, uh, we're we're also going to do a, a Sigurd and Gudrun uh, one after that. So those are going to be coming up over the next six to nine months. We're going to be doing those intermittently. So I hope that that will help to you know that in addition, of course, the Mythgard Academy is going to keep going as well. So I hope between all these things, we'll be able to to help to keep you. Uh, you know, off the streets and out of the pool halls uh, as we move forward. Um, okay, okay, okay. The Lost Road. Let's, I, let's, I, I, I don't want to get too distracted, but as you can see, I'm really excited about what we're doing uh, at Signum and about our program and how it's developing. I hope you will, uh, you will take a look at it and share it with your friends and let people know because uh, and I know that there are a lot of people, you know, we often hear from people uh, you know, our new, the new applicants to our program, you know, who say like, I can't believe this really exists. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been wishing I could, you know, I could study this stuff, you know, in this kind of depth for, you know, for my whole life, you know, where has this been? And I know that there are a lot of people, uh, who, um, who really, um, feel that way and would feel that way, but haven't heard about it yet. So I hope you'll, you'll help us in kind of spreading the word about that. All right. Okay. 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 Let's talk about the lost road. Uh, so let's do a quick recap of Volumes 1 through 4, The History of Middle-Earth. Um, the main thing is, uh, of course, you'll remember the overall purpose of the History of Middle-Earth series in Christopher Tolkien's mind um, was to sort of explain the growth of the Silmarillion material specifically. Um, it was, you know, th- there's a sense in which the History of Middle-Earth series is a massively over-the-top response to criticisms of the Silmarillion and basically, uh, you know, readers of the Silmarillion wondering and speculating how much of this is really Tolkien and how much of this d- was Christopher Tolkien filling in the blanks, right? Since it was published, you know, posthumously and it wasn't really, it wasn't really made clear in the Silmarillion. So, Christopher Tolkien in the preface to volume one is like, oh yeah, fine. You want to know? I'll show you. And so he shows um, much, much more than anyone could possibly have guessed he would about how this stuff grew. So it begins, of course, in the first two volumes, the books, the books of Lost Tales, Book of Lost Tales, volume one and two, um, really no separation between them. It was the same project, um, just divided into the two different, um, 
the two different volumes by by Christopher uh, in the publication. Um, but the the Lost Tales were Tolkien's original stories. So when Tolkien first sat down to write the, the very first Middle Earth stories that he wrote, um, were the Lost Tales, and it's essentially the it, it gives the history of what we will what we have come to think of as the first age, and we'll come to talk about that a good deal more this evening. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and many of the stories that we know, you know, there are lots of things that are quite different about the, the Book of Lost Tales compared to the published Silmarillion stories with which people are more familiar. But a lot of the, uh, the elements go way back to that, you know, the fall of Gondolin, you know, Eärendil and the fall of Gondolin, the, uh, the, the, the voyage of Eärendil, though that's pretty different. Um, the darkening of Valinor, you know, the story of Turin Turinbar, the story of Baron and Luthien, uh, many, many differences in all those things, but, but, but a lot of those sort of fundamental elements um, are there in the Book of Lost Tales, but it's really cool to look at and sort of see not just kind of what those stories looked like then, but kind of where Tolkien's mind was back then and how he looked at things. So that's really interesting. The Lays of Beleriand is then after that. So it's it's in the late teens and early 20s that he's working on the um, the Lost Tales, but he doesn't quite finish it as usual. He kind of, he he abandons it and it looked like he had basically decided he wanted to sort of shift how he was doing the whole frame. Because um, the frame story was of this historical English dude, uh, this like medieval English dude, who uh, 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 traveled to Tol Arisea, to Elvenholm, and uh, uh, you know, sort of ended up there on the island and heard all these stories, um, was at the, uh, the Cottage of Lost Play, and was told all these stories by the elves there of Tol Arisea. And uh, so, okay, so he decided to totally change the frame of the narrator. He's going to change from Ariel, who is the original uh, er- uh, narrator, to Alfwina. Um, and that encompassed, that, that involved a, a bunch of changes. So he was going to have to go back and revise a whole bunch of things. And he kind of, it seemed like he kind of ran out of steam at that point. And he never came back and finished the Book of Lost Tales completely. Um, in particularly to the detriment of the A. Arendel story, which was never fully articulated. Lots of stuff about it and lots of hints about what he was thinking and lots of kind of conflicting narrative scraps. Um, but no real coherent story of A. Arendel, uh, which is quite a shame as it was really going to be the crowning sort of, th- uh, uh, you know, the biggest, most important story in the whole book, as the Book of Lost Tales seemed to have been projected. Um, but he didn't finish it. Instead, what he decides to do is to shift to some of the major elements. So rather than going back to that that whole collection of stories, that, that sort of cohesive collection of stories bound together within that frame of these elves telling these stories to the human Ariel or Alfwina later on, instead of going that way and writing this big compendium of all these stories, he decided instead, I'm just going to focus on like the big stories, the stories that he was most invested in. And he was going to write sort of the full version of, of of those stories, really flesh those out more and really invest in those particular stories. And, oh, and P.S., he decided to do this in poetry, right? He just decided to do all this in verse. So we got several of those. Now, there's some, there's, uh, you know, snippets of the, uh, well, not snippets, a goodly bit, you know, a couple hundred lines, um, of the a, a poetic treatment of the kinslaying. There's a, a, a one of about the fall of Gondolin, but he abandoned those pretty quickly. The two that he really stuck with longest were uh, the children of Hurin, the Turin Turinbar story, 
uh, which is written in alliterative verse, uh, based uh, uh, sort of modeled modeled after after Beowulf, um, and the uh, and the the Lay of Lathian, the Baron and Luthien story, which was written in rhyming couplets. And that's, of course, volume three. The Lays of Beleriand is primarily the Lay of Lathian and the alliterative Children of Hurin, um, which we spent a class looking at. Um, and those stories are really, really neat. We can see some ways in which kind of the, the, the larger world of the story is sort of taking shape in the background around it. There are some things about it that change over the course of the articulation of those two stories. But it's... Um, it's it's not what his focus was on, right? His focus was on developing those two big primary stories. Now, after that, we get to the shaping of Middle-earth. And the shaping of Middle-earth is where he kind of left those aside. Of course, needless to say, he didn't finish either one, either the Children of Hurin or uh, the Lay of Lathian. Um, they came reasonably close with the Lay of Lathian. Um, it's at least not just a little fragment. He got all the way up through the flight from Angband after the taking of the Silmaril. So that's pretty good. I mean, I would really have loved to see what he did with the Song of Luthien and the Resurrections and all that stuff, where that, where that was headed exactly. Um, would have loved to see that in the Lay of Lathian, but i got, I, I got to be thankful for what we have uh, of the Lay of Lathian. In the shaping of Middle-earth, he seemed to, to sort of come back again, and this seemed to happen, and we looked, this is our last class on the shaping of Middle-earth, um, this seemed to happen more or less accidentally. That is, he was, and, and it was because of the poems, he was going to send out the children of Hurin for somebody else to read. Well, he did send it out for somebody else to read. But, being Tolkien, he was, he decided, like, some context was needed. Because although he took those stories out of his larger collection, right, out of the Book of Lost Tales, he chose, you know, the Children of Hurin story and the Baron and Luthien story uh, and decided to, to really focus on them and expand them, still he couldn't totally just rip them out and act as if they were totally freestanding stories, right? His whole larger legendarium story was still kind of obviously in his heart. Because when he sends the Children of Hurin off to this other reader, he feels compelled uh, he feels compelled to write a, a, this synopsis of this, this sketch of the mythology, as he called it. Um, and this, so the sketch of the mythology is a prose... Uh, a, a, it's, it's, it's a prose epitome, a prose synopsis of the entire story from the Aina Lindale up through, uh, through the, the, the War of Wrath at the end of what we now think of as the First Age. Um, and again, it was just designed to accompany the children of Horn. It becomes, you know, he gets carried away in writing it, as he was so wont to do um, when doing this kind of thing. Um, most of his outlines turn into something bigger after he gets started with them. Um, and this seemed, and and this seemed to be a mode. This this kind of this kind of single synopsis, not this sort of set of short stories, essentially kind of set within the frame that we had in the Lost Tales. This sort of plot summary version of it was something, and this is one of the things we looked at a lot in the last class, seemed to be a place where, kind of surprisingly, he decided to sort of sit down and live, where he was like, yeah, I like the plot summary mode, and so he started revising it and redoing it, and that's where the Quenta came from. Um, so the Quenta, uh, the, what he called the Quenta, um, was uh, was basically an, an expansion of that 
plot summary and it's you know it's now you know it's it's in it's in different parts and it, it's much it's significantly longer and this is kind of the origin of the of the eventual published Silmarillion this is where the the mode of the published Silmarillion comes from this kind of uh, overview um of of these of these stories rather than kind of the, the again this sort of series of short stories set within a a different frame, the Book of Lost Tales version. So no, he decides he's going to do this plot summary thing, and he writes other. St- he begins to write other material to kind of flesh it out. There's the Embar- There's the maps that he drew, which we looked at in the last class. There's the Embarcanta, which is his his sort of account of the cosmos, really, and the the whole kind of co- larger cosmology of Middle Earth. And then he started writing these annals, the annals of of Amon and the I mean, the annals of Valinor and the annals of Beleriand. Um, this was just sort of year by year uh, 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 chronology of the events, um, which are sort of designed to accompany the Quinta in kind of a different way of presenting these things. Um, all of this material kind of together seems to now be the Silmarillion, like that, you know, the, all, all of this stuff together, it seems to be how he's he's increasingly beginning to think of the Silmarillion, and now we've kind of left the the bigger, longer, epic versions of those stories, what he was working on in the ways of Beleriand, uh, further and further behind. Now, thing to keep in mind, chronologically, where are we? So, okay, I said the Lost Tales were in the late teens and early 20s. It was in the 20s um, that he was working on the poems, um, up through that he did the Children of Hurin first, and then he kind of abandoned that. Well, really, the, there was kind of a I'm almost tempted to call it like a hostile takeover of the children of Hurin by uh, uh, by the 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 story of Baron and Luthien. For those of you who studied that with me, will remember those bits uh, in the children of Hurin, where he like the story of Baron and Luthien comes up in 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 the in the children of Hurin, and it just like expands and span expands and takes over like an entire canto of of uh, of the children of Hurin. It's it's like that story was just kind of bursting out of him, uh, and eventually he stops fighting it and just sits down and does the Lay of Lathian. Um, but uh, but anyway, so the Lay of Lathian comes second, and that's in the late twenties up to the very early thirties. Uh, he's doing the Lay of Lathian. Um, and this other Silmarillion stuff, the sketch of the mythology, was written in 1930. The Quenta came soon thereafter. Um, so we're looking at the very early 30s for that material that I was describing from the Shaping of Middle-Earth uh, volume. Um, that brings us now up to... But the thing to remember, before we bring us now to the, to the current volume, the thing to remember is that time period, 1930, between 1930 and 1933, is also when he's writing The Hobbit. Okay, so we have come up to the point which is now contemporary with sort of like the Tolkien that everybody knows and loves, right? So we have to think, and we, we talked about this quite a bit um, when we were in the Shaping of Middle Earth class, uh, looking back and forth. For instance, um, we have every reason to think, for instance, that his depiction of the dwarves in the Quenta back in the Shaping of Middle uh, in the Shaping of Middle Earth. That's pretty much what he had in mind um, when, you know, that's that's what dwarves were to him when Thorin and company show up at Bilbo on Bilbo's doorstep in The Hobbit. And that's kind of an eye opener uh, to look at that kind of thing. So, so The Hobbit was being written at the time of the shaping of Middle-earth material. What we're going to be looking at in Lost Road and other works and other writings is basically the stuff that he was working on between 
finish. It's sort of after the Silmarillion stuff in the previous volume, of course, but it's also between the writing of The Hobbit and the writing of The Lord of the Rings. He sat down, he began writing The Lord of the Rings in about 1937, which was the publication of The Hobbit. The, the Hobbit was published in September of, 19, of 1937, and that was, it was very quickly successful, uh, and the publishers began to clamor for a sequel, and that's when he really began to set, sit down and write what would eventually develop into The Lord of the Rings. That was 1937. Again, he finished the writing of The Hobbit in 1933. There was a four-year gap while there was a lot of sort of revising and toing and froing with the publisher and everything and, and, and delays. Um, so, uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, so during that time, is, is that, that, that's the window that we're looking at here before he really turns his, uh, his thoughts uh, much more fully to the writing of The Lord of the Rings. That, of course, is where we would be headed next, should the electorate choose to continue this series. I don't, because for those of you who aren't familiar with the Mythgard Academy, I don't choose the books uh, for these classes. These are elected uh, by our supporters. We are completely fan-funded. Um, and uh, so for those of, uh, for everyone who has participated in our um, uh, in our uh, uh, fundraising, uh, they get to vote and choose which books that we um, uh uh, which which uh, which we do. So, if the electorate chooses to continue our history of Middle Earth discussion, the next volume is the Return of the Shadow, and that's the beginning of the three volume look at um, at the development of the Lord of the Rings. So we'll be looking at sort of how the Lord of the Rings grew uh, in Tolkien's mind, which is a really fascinating study. But this volume, we're getting in that window now. After the Hobbit's done, before the Lord of the Rings is started, what's he doing? What's he working on? And this, of course, is where we finally come around to one of the major elements that was, that's been missing in the Silmarillion material so far, that is missing from the point of view of the published Silmarillion, and that's the Numenor stuff, or really more broadly, anything past the First Age. As I've been saying, we think of all that Silmarillion stuff, all this, like, we think of that stuff which has been the entire content of Tolkien's Middle-earth output to this point, um... We've been thinking of that as first age material, right? From coming from a Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, especially Lord of the Rings point of view, that's how that's how we we think of it, right? It's that's back in the first age of Middle Earth. But of course, remember that the end of the first age was originally the end, right? This was the whole story. There was this the the idea of first age, second age, third age, fourth age is was very far from Tolkien's mind. You could say that he had something like two ages in mind. Right. That is like the age of the of the firstborn and then the age of men, you know, the the, the the time of the dominion of men, which came afterwards. But he didn't really use that terminology, first age and second age uh, in there. Um, so I mean, going back to the Book of Lost Tales, going back to sort of the original concept, like what exactly Tolkien was writing stories about in the first place. Right. One way to characterize what he was writing stories about in the first place in all of his Silmarillion material is kind of how did things get to be the way they are? I mean, now in our world, right? The world in which is dominated by men, but haunted by stories of elves, right? And with this sort of hint of, of, of sort of, um, you know, magic and fairy influence that can perhaps be sensed in certain places and all these things. I mean, he wrote lots of poems about that kind of thing, especially back in the in the tw- in the teens and twenties and thirties. Um, so uh, we have, you know, the elves have faded, 
right? Um, so now they are almost never seen, largely absent, almost entirely invisible if they are still around. Um, but the land and, you know, sort of human folklore and consciousness retains the memory of their influence, right? So how did... So there's a sense in which all of Tolkien's Silmarillion work is kind of giving us a sort of a theoretical, here's how this situation came to be. So the end of the stories, the end of his stories, was always the time of the fading of the elves, explaining how we got to the place where we are now, how we got to the place where the elves have faded and the men have taken over. So the um, the end of the first age is the end of the stories, and the curtain is coming down, um, not just on like one particular age of Middle-earth, but on the elves, right? On the firstborn entirely in the world. It's really a passing from the elder days into the modern world, really. Um, of course, we would call that time the early medieval world, but it's the modern world. I mean, to Tolkien, that's modern, right? Um, so, okay. So, again, so to us, as we think and we think about the Silmarillion tradition, especially if we're focused on the Lord of the Rings and we think back over the history of Middle-earth sort of backwards from the third or fourth age of Middle-earth, Numenor seems like this is, is this huge thing, right? I mean, it's, it seems almost inevitable to us from a four-age perspective, right? The, old, the elder days of Middle-earth and then, you know, the fading time, but the fading time is extended, right, through the second and even the third ages of the world, and Numenor looms really large. But from the original vantage point, from the original place where Tolkien was in telling these stories, Numenor and the story of the fall of Numenor is far from inevitable, even far from necessary, even, in a sense, far from logical. It's more like an unanticipated sequel. By unanticipated sequel, what I mean is... Not one of those, like, sequels that comes after a book which ends with, like, an obvious teaser for a potential sequel. I, you all know what the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? When, when movies will do that or books will do that, leave an obvious opening for the next book, right? Tolkien's discussion of the Elder Days did not end with, uh, with an obvious teaser for a, an upcoming sequel, right? Um, it was very much... Um, it was very much of a... Um, this is this is the end of the stories of the elder days and the beginning of what will come into just you know humdrum modern history essentially right and maybe there might be something interesting to tell about the transition in there but it's not it's not really it's certainly not a continuation of the elder days story right so the idea that he's going to take a new story the story of Numenor and add it at the end right and therefore in doing so extend and really quite radically alter the whole texture really of the of the ending you know of the of the fading of the elves it's a huge deal and it involved him actually going back and reworking making the end of the of the of the, the now the first age um much less final than it had been before because again conceptually it was uh it was really it was really pretty final. Um, so in order to accommodate this new story, he had to really rewrite um, a lot of, sort of really rethink a lot of things because it's, it's very different. This is not just sort of the hand, all right, the fading of the firstborn and the handing off to men. Uh, the Numenorean story is quite different. So let us finally 
it's been almost an hour, but not quite. Let, 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 let's finally go to the text and start my uh, uh, now largely implausible number of slides that I want to get through from the fall of Numenor. Um, the first thing I want to address is um, the slip that Christopher Tolkien eventually uh, and sort of hesitantly concludes that his father made. Um, if you didn't read sort of the introduction or that first piece, uh, Christopher Tolkien talks about what he's talking about is there are passages in Tolkien's letters when he explicitly says that there exists, like he had written Numenorean stuff, right? He had written the story of the fall of Numenor that was unattached to Middle-earth. It was not part of the Elder Days at all. It was its own independent, it was just like a, a totally separate story he was writing. And then after that, he decided, after having written that, at some point after that, he decided to come back and integrate it into the story of Middle-earth, right? So he, he, he remembered that, and this letter is written 30 years after this after the fact. It's written in the 60s, okay? Um, and so Christopher Tolkien is was quoting those letters and kind of trying to account for that. And he, um, um, he says, Christopher says, that, you know, basically all of the evidence, all the documentary evidence, suggests that Tolkien was wrong about that. You know, all of the stuff... Um, all the stuff that he wrote that he wrote that survives at all about Numenor, and it seems like it's the earliest stuff. It's hard to imagine fully written versions of this story which predated this material is clearly part of the Middle-earth story from the very beginning, right? So let's look at Christopher's discussion of this. I conclude, therefore, that Numenor, as, di- as, dis- as distant and formalized conception, whatever Atlantis haunting, as my father call it, called it, lay behind. I'll explain that in a minute arose in the actual context of his discussions with C.S. Lewis in, as seems probable, 1936. Okay, so, first of all, so let's let's go sentence by sentence here. Um, He says, first of all, did the idea of the fall of New... Did the fall of Numenor predate the Lost Road material? You know, he's been... uh, Christopher's just been talking about the famous, uh, you know, the famous, uh, uh, you know, coin toss that J.R.R. Tolkien did with C.S. Lewis when they decided one of them was going to write a space travel story, the other was going to write a time travel story, and they tossed a coin, and Tolkien got time travel, and Lewis got space travel. Uh, the space travel story, of course, became uh, Out of the Silent Planet, the first of, uh, of Lewis's space trilogy. And Tolkien's time travel story was The Lost Road, which we're going to be talking about next week. Um, so Christopher Tolkien is first saying that all of the evidence suggests that the Numenor story simply emerged from Tolkien's thoughts about the time travel story, right? So when he tossed up with nineteen thirty with C.S. Lewis in nineteen thirty-six, um, that's when the Numenor story was born in his mind. There does lay something behind it, though, which is this Atlantis haunting. More on that in a little bit. A passage in the 1964 letter can be taken to say precisely that. I began an abortive book of time travel, The Lost Road, of which the end was to be the presence of my hero in the drowning of Atlantis. This was to be called Numenor, the land in the West. Moreover, Numenor was from the outset conceived in full association with the Silmarillion. There was never a time when the legends of Numenor were unrelated to the main mythology, as he claimed in that letter. My father erred in his recollection or expressed himself obscurely, meaning something else. The letter cited above was indeed written nearly 30 years later. So, um, uh, Christopher, and he's always so hesitant when 
he does this, right? When he says, like, I think that my dad was just wrong when he remembered this. Now, I'm drawing attention to this, not because I'm wanting to make a big deal about the fact that Tolkien made a mistake about this. I mean, can I just start off by saying I find that the most natural thing in the world? I mean, don't ask me for an account of what's going on now in 30 years, because it won't make any sense. I mean, I am sure that 30 years from now, I'm going to think we had a Tolkien studies and an imaginative literature concentration from the very beginning of Signum University. Um, But anyway, whatever. It's just, it's, it's totally understandable that Tolkien would uh, might might make a mistake and misremember how stories emerged many years back. And there are many examples of this, of him saying something in a letter or in a talk. Um, like, for instance, when he said that um, uh, he, he said that uh, Farmer Giles of Ham was the first of his stories that he ever actually composed on the typewriter. Uh, no, actually, he didn't. There's a manuscript that came before it, and you can find the manuscript, and there it is, right? It's pretty obvious that it came before the typescript. Um, but whatever. It's, uh, it's, 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 my, my point is not to make a big deal of that. To me, though, this is, the question to me is, why did Tolkien make this particular mistake? That is, okay, so what this suggests, assuming that it was in fact a mistake and not him just, not him just expressing himself obscurely, as Christopher Tolkien suggests, I don't know what he would be meaning if he weren't meaning that, um, but, um, but anyway, um, uh, so my question is why, why this mistake, right? So 30 years down the road, he had a narrative in his own mind about the birth of the Numenor story and the lost road. And he had the, the story that he had in, in his own head was that the story of Numenor predated the middle, not predated all the middle earth materials, but that, that it had an independent existence prior to being merged into the Middle-earth material. Now, that turns out to be untrue. The untruth of it isn't what I find interesting. What I find interesting is, why is it that he would have... I don't think that's just a random mistake, right? Why is it that that story, that version of the story, really took root in Tolkien's own mind? Now, I don't know the answer to this. Nobody knows the answer to this. Christopher doesn't know, and he knows more than anybody else. But I have a guess. Keep in mind, this is a guess. Me guessing. Don't know, not claiming to know. Want to make sure that's clear. Um, but here's my guess. My guess is, it, sh- it suggests, it shows that Tolkien, in his later days, retained a memory of this... In- you know, obviously, there's some sense in which the Numenor story was independent. I don't think he just kind of made that up or totally slipped a cog. Um, there's a reason why years later he held on to the idea that the Atlantis business, the Numenor stuff, was in some sense independent. The documentary evidence suggests it was never independent of the Middle-earth story. So in what sense is that? What's the root? What's the seed of that later thought of Tolkien's? And I think it comes back to the Atlantis haunting. And that's what I really want to emphasize. The Atlantis haunting, many of you know this story, but um, uh, but I'll, I'll tell it just to, for those of you who, who, who don't know this story. Tolkien was always fascinated by Atlantis, and for rather personal reasons. Uh, he had a recurring dream. Um, those of you who know the Lord of the Rings will may remember the passage right... Um, so it's right after Mount Doom, 
and the destruction of the ring. And there's the kind of flashback in time to Faramir and Eowyn back in Minas Tirith, right, as they're waiting to hear, right? So we already know, the readers already know about, you know, what's going to happen. But it goes back to Minas Tirith where nobody yet has heard the news. And we get this is where, where we get the really adorable sort of scenes between, uh, you know, Faramir, smooth operator, and Eowyn, and Eowyn there in the Houses of Healing, right? Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so in that passage, so they, they see like the cloud of darkness arise, right? Which is Sauron rising up and he's, he's about to be dispersed, right? Um, and so you remember they have that exchange where he's, uh, where Faramir says that really strange thing. He says, it reminds me of Numenor. And Eowyn says, of Numenor? And he says, yes. Uh, and he describes this, this huge green wave uh, uh, coming over and engulfing the entire, you know, coming towards him and engulfing the entire land. And he says, I often dream of it. That was Tolkien's actual experience. And he talked about this on many occasions and wrote several letters about it. Um, he had a recurring dream throughout his life of this, of this, the land sinking beneath the sea and this huge wave coming forward to, to engulf him. And the thing that made that dream especially uh, interesting to him is that he discovered that his son Michael also had that dream and had been having that dream for a long time before he ever told him about it or they ever discussed it. So he had this recurring dream and it seemed to be a hereditary recurring dream of what, what he identified with Atlantis, with the, the, the sort of the cataclysmic sinking of the island and the ocean overwhelming the land. So he, he, as he said, he bequeaths his dream to Faramir uh, and, uh, uh, and included it in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and in the Lord of the Rings, of course, it's associated with Numenor. That's what Christopher Tolkien is referring to when he talks about his Atlantis haunting. That's Tolkien's own phrase. That's why he puts quotation marks around it. Um, that Tolkien always had this Atlantis haunting. Uh, it was something that was kind of always in his mind and sort of uh, on the edges of his sort of uh, his, his kind of creative life. So I think that my guess is that that's the root of his memory, that it existed independently, because I think there probably was a sense in which this, at the very least, desire to write a story about Atlantis uh, and the drowning of the land was always kind of in his mind. It doesn't mean he ever actually did it, because it doesn't look like he did ever actually do it. Um... But that that story was still kind of there. It was a, it was it was an unscratched itch for a long time as he was doing this other Silmarillion stuff. So this moment, which is actually him first writing this down and doing so in the context of the Middle Earth material of the Silmarillion, um, re- remained in his mind thirty years later as him finally taking this kind of pre-existing story and splicing it in to the Middle Earth. Um, context, the Silmarillion context. That narrative seems to me uh, kind of um, the more plausible based on the fact that it, the splicing business, because of the, 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 well, you could almost say sort of the violence that it does to the Silmarillion tradition. That's unfair. I don't mean to say that it doesn't fit or he does it clumsily or something like that. I don't mean to imply either one of those things. But but what I was saying about how it really requires him to rethink and really it, 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 it it's something that really alters the trajectory of the Silmarillion material very significantly when it gets added in there at the end. So I think that that fact is perhaps another reason why, because he would 
you know, why he sort of retained this side, this, 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 this internal narrative of by putting in the Numenor stuff, you know, it was, uh, it had to be kind of, you know, sort of forced into or spliced onto the Silmarillion stuff. Um, and so maybe that's another reason that he kind of, um, uh, thought of it that way. Um, anyway, um, so that's why I wanted to emphasize the mental slip thing and the context of this. What I want to do um, for the rest of today, we're going to be looking at the fall of Numenor, his first prose version of the story. And I want to be looking at this, um, again, not just comparing and contrasting. The, the Akalabeth, of course, in the Silmarillion is sort of the ultimate version of the Numenor story, uh, uh, pretty much, um, more or less. It wouldn't have been had he finished other things he was writing, uh, like The Lost Road, of course, primarily. But uh, but as far as completed works are concerned, the Akalabeth is sort of the final statement of it. Um, I'm not going to be doing a lot of comparing and, you know, sort of detailed going back and forth, comparing and contrasting with the Akalabeth. Instead, what I want to do is I want to look at this as what it is, as the beginning of the Numenor story. And I want to be thinking, what are the original elements? Like, what was the Numenor story about? from the beginning, right? Um, so in some ways, rather than comparing forward to what we get in The Lord of the Rings and in the published Silmarillion, I want to forget about it. Um, and I want to, I want to, so forget we ever knew any of that stuff and just focus on this and really see when he sits down to write the Numenor story, what is it really primarily about? So I'm going to start with, I'm going to look at a lot of the original outline that he wrote, his original scheme, because this is of particular interest to me because it shows us in a way, an outline is even more fun uh, in one way. An outline is even more fun than the fully drafted narrative because it shows us what are the important plot elements, right? So when he was, when he was jotting down the important skeleton of the story, wh- what were those bones? You know, what were really the central elements of the story? So I want to go through, and, I, and so there are four elements that I've identified that seem to me to be based upon the outline that he gives us uh, really close to the heart of the story. And now we've finally come to the point uh, where I'm going to really be looking for much active participation from you guys. Um, As I read these passages, I want you to make observations. What jumps out at you? What things do you notice? Uh, And I'll try to, I'll try to, to, to read and respond to as many of your comments as I can. All right. Uh, Element number one, Atalante, the downfallen. The last battle of the gods. Men side largely with Morgoth. After the victory, the gods take counsel. Elves are summoned to Valinor. Struck out, faithful men dwell in the lands. The lands would be the great lands, what later on will be called Middle-earth. Those of you who did do the other classes will recall the phrase Middle-earth hasn't been used in any of the first four volumes of the history of Um, Middle-earth. What we think of as Middle-earth, he called the Great Lands in his early writing. So the lands, I think, are clearly, that's what he's referring to there. Um, So notice, even in this outline, in the first paragraph of the outline, so that first paragraph, he's going over the end of the Silmarillion material, right? Um... And even there, he starts with faithful men dwell in the lands, and he strikes that out, right? So this idea of, like, the separate land of Numenor, it's still, it's still growing, right? Many men had not come into the old tales. They are still at large on earth. The fathers of men are given a land to dwell in, raised by Ose and Aule in the great western sea. The western kingdom grows up. Atalante, added in margin, legend so named it afterward, 
the old name was Numar, or Numinos. Atelante equals the falling. Okay? Um, all right, so, so what do you notice? What do you notice? What, what, what do we see at the beginning of this? You know, what do we see as the heart of the Numenor story? Where, where does the Numenor story begin, right? To me, what's really fascinating are the two elements that we can see side by side, um, absolutely wedded together from the very beginning of the Numenor story, right? Thing number one, the fathers of man are given a land to dwell in, right? So we have this idea of the reward of the faithful men. So men are good, and some men make really good choices, right? Uh, and are rewarded by the gods. But the second thread, of course, is Atalante, the falling, right? The, the fall of Numenor is there from the beginning, <laughs> right? Uh, is an essential part of the story uh, from the very beginning. It, the first name that the Western, Kiven, the Western Kingdom is given is Atalante, um, which, of course, looks shockingly like Atlantis, naturally. Um, I say naturally, but of course, it's totally defensible. Um, Tolkien says, and Christopher Tolkien repeats on lots and lots of occasions, this is not just Tolkien naming Numenor after the Isle of Atlantis. Um, This is a word, this is a name, Atalanta, which is derived from the languages that he had already made, that he had made years and years before this, and you can go back and look in the, you know, the, the, his earlier writings on these languages and his early word lists and all of that stuff, and you can, and Christopher quotes several examples of this, where the name Atalanta is based on the root for falling or tripping or falling down, and, uh, and that's, it's, it's, so it's, it's not, it's like, a, it's just a coincidence. It's possible that it's just a coincidence, that it is chance, if chance we call it. Um, I don't, um, uh, I don't, yeah, and yeah, yeah Josh, uh, as Josh Ramsey points out, you can see it um, in uh, in the etymologies in this very book. If you look up Tal, T-A-L, um, it means to fall. Um, and that's the root of Atalanta. Um, I, uh, or Talat, yeah, yeah, exactly, Josh. Um, I don't, um, believe that, that it was just a coincidence. As Kate Neville says, Tolkien is a coincidence wizard. I agree. I agree. I mean, I would be willing to think that the causality goes the other way around. Uh, given the fact that Tolkien had had this Atlantis haunting for much of his life, I would not be in the least surprised to discover that the the name of Atlantis was influencing the words that he chose to represent the the uh, concept of to fall. That that had been somewhere at least at the back of his mind, uh, way you know years before when he was first uh, writing his word lists in his language. Um, but uh, but anyway, that's um, uh, that's that's so okay, I, I I don't buy that it's. 100% strangely coincidental, any more than I buy that Avalone, the name of the Lonely Isle, is just coincidentally almost exactly the same as the Isle of Avalon, which is the traditional Isle of Fairy uh, off in the sea 
you know, that ki- that King Arthur is taken to in the Arthurian stories. Don't buy that either, though that also can be shown through the etymologies to merely be a product of Tolkien's invented languages. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, a couple other observations that you guys um, are making. Um, Arthur has a great uh, observation. Why falling, not fallen? Uh, uh, do I think um, I, I agree, um, Arthur? That's a really interesting question, or, or, or that's a really interesting observation. I, I mean, it's the difference, right, between the present participle and the past participle. Why present participle instead of the past participle? Um, I guess, yeah. The published Akalabeth uses the fallen, the downfallen. Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess I would say, uh, I mean, my first my first impulse to that is that they seem to be given from different points of view. Um, the Akalabeth is much more firmly looking back on it from a post-Numenor. Numenorian point of view, right? Like from a Gondorian point of view, from from the Elendil perspective, um, and so Numenor is in the past tense from the beginning, right? From the beginning of the story, it's in the past tense, and it's part of the tragedy, right? Which is which is encoded in the story of Numenor as it's told in the Akalabeth from the very beginning. Um, this suggests to me that the way he's thinking about this is less so, and it makes sense. Right? He's not looking back at the story of Numenor from the Third Age. Third Age doesn't exist yet. Right? He, this, is, this is the sequel. This is the new material. This is the modern world. Right? Um, so he's telling the story of the falling, not of that thing which has fallen. Right? Maybe. Anyway, that cert- it certainly seems to have that, it, that effect or to invite us uh, to kind of look at it that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Now, um, uh, Don, you were making a really good point that it's interested that it's the falling and not like the drowning or, or something like that. That is, the, the inclusion of the word fall is kind of conspicuous from a Christian, you know, from a, from a, from a Catholic standpoint. Um, I, I, I certainly agree, Don. Uh, I mean, I don't think, you know, the, the, the Garden of Eden echo that we get there. Um, I mean, there is, of course, because you're right, in a sense, Don, the verb drowning would seem to be more, uh, more obviously fitting. If it were merely an objective description of what happens to Numenor, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it kind of falls, right? Like physically tumbles into the abyss. Um, but, uh, but it, that doesn't really seem to kind of justify the choice. Um, yeah, at Mary, as you say, uh, all stories are ultimately about the fall. Tolkien said, and yeah, I think we can we can hear that um, in his choice of of the terms there. So, which shows us, of course, it gives us a clue already here in the second paragraph of the outline. It gives us a clue about what kind of story we're going to be reading, what kind of tragedy we're going to be reading. The fact that it's called the falling tells us this is going to be a tragedy. Right, but it also tells us what kind of this is not just a, a disaster story. This is not just the tragedy of this great society that has been lost or this you know, this 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 paradise which has been lost to us. But it's it's not just a story about a paradise which has been lost, it's a paradise lost story, right? Um it's about how 
not just the land of Numenor has fallen, but the people of Numenor have fallen uh, in this in this sense. Rachel makes a wonderful observation. Uh, Rachel Oreskovich says, falling is something you do. Drowning happens to you. Uh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. It does come down to human agency, Rachel, I agree. And uh, it does emphasize the agency of, uh, of, of humans, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Kelly, we're going to come back around to... Well, we're, I don't want to talk about Faramir too much at this point. Again, we'll come back around to the Third Age perspective later on, uh, but I, w- I want to focus on what we see within the frame of this text for now. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Chuck. It gives us a, 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 a prime to look at not the material fall, but the, the sort of the psychic or the moral fall, yeah, of, uh, of, of Numenor. Um, absolutely. Yeah, Cecilia, I agree. Drowning might indicate more of an accident, um, uh, something that wasn't the person or the island's fault, right? But this fall was clearly uh, was clearly somebody's fault, and that's pointed to in the very beginning with the parallel, you know, with that uh, Garden of Eden parallel that we do kind of inescapably get there. All right. Um, let's keep going. Original element number two. Thu, uh, the evil one who brings evil to the island of Numenor. Thu comes to Atalante, heralded, read heralding, that's Christopher Tolkien's note, uh, 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 heralding the approach of Morgoth. But Morgoth cannot come except as a spirit being doomed to dwell outside the walls of night. The, the Atalanteans fall and rebel. They make a temple to Thu Morgoth, they build an armament, and assail the shores of the gods with thunder. Okay. Um, all right, so... Uh, so Thu, Thu, the name Thu will be familiar to people who have been studying with us before. We are introduced to the character of Thu in the Lay of Lathian, in the Lays of Beleriand, um, during the Baron and Luthien story, when Baron is on his way uh, to Angband to try to take the Silmaril from Morgoth. He is captured uh, by the necromancer Thu and uh, held prisoner, where, uh, of course, he's eventually rescued. Uh, by his far more powerful girlfriend. So um, Thu, of course, will become Sauron, and obviously we see that happen over the course of this um, um, uh, over the course of this chapter, obviously. Um, so we have remember, this is a sequel, right? This is a sequel to the story that he's already written. So he takes he, so this is significant. Um, even for no other reason, this is significant because we get him his choice of a new villain, right? Morgoth has been banished. Is he just going to have Morgoth return, right? Uh, no, that many sequels do that, right? He's not going to do that. Um, he emphasizes here Morgoth can't actually come except as a spirit, right? So he can have some kind of influence, Morgoth can, over the world, but Morgoth can't himself come back. And we saw Morgoth operating as tempter, especially of, uh, of Feanor and the Noldor uh, in Valinor, uh, in the earlier Silmarillion materials. Um, Morgoth, however, cannot play that role. So we have the choice, and this happens from the very, very beginning, from this first outline of the Numenor story. We elect Morgoth's successor, his former Lieutenant Thu, who will soon be renamed Sauron. Um, and he plays a role which is parallel to the one that 
Morgoth played, but it's not exactly parallel. It's not entirely parallel, that is. He does more, or at least different things, than Morgoth did with the Noldor back in Valinor. Um, the primary difference, of course, is that Thu doesn't seek, according to this account, Thu doesn't seek to bring um, worship to himself entirely, right? He comes as a prophet, heralding the approach of Morgoth. He comes prophesying that Morgoth is going to return, and that they, the Atalanteans or the Numenorians, should worship him, right? But there is clearly an element of um, of of Thu worship involved, right? As Josh was pointing out, that uh, Thu Morgoth business, right? Make a temple to Thu Morgoth. It's a temple to Morgoth, right? Which Thu encourages them to make, but it's clear that some element of um, of Thu worship also takes place there. So Thu does not come in saying, I am the real God, worship me instead and do what I say. That's not his approach. Um, his approach is as a prophet of a greater God, um, and yet he also does draw worship unto himself. Um, okay. Uh, good, good. Kate Neville points out that we see, of course, the fall of the men happens before uh, the fall of the land. Yes, we can see clearly how the uh, how the fall of the land is going to be consequent uh, um, uh, from the fall of the people. Yeah, um, yeah. Josh is asking, does this mean that the Thu and Morgoth are conflated into one object of of, of worship? It's not that clear. I, I, it's possible. Um, like, this is just an outline, right? So it could be that one sentence, they make a temple to Thu-Morgoth, um, could contain an entire story, which might be like the original, the ultimate story we get in the Akalabeth, right? Of how it's a temple to Morgoth, right? But people come to worship Thu himself as a god over the course of time. We see that in the Akalabeth. It's possible that that kind of story might be in his head when he jots down that really short sentence, right? It's a little unclear. <coughs> Anyway, good. Um, okay, so... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Um, Jordan. Great observation. Um, with thunder. Um, why does it say, assail the shores of God with thunder? Jordan asks, does that mean something like cannon fire? Jordan, I believe that that is exactly what that means. And this is something that we will see again and again through this earlier material. Um the Numenorians are just the, the 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 might in arms of the Numenorians is described as being inconceivable, inconceivably great, um, completely overwhelming, um, and I remember actually when I first read the Akalabeth, one of the things that I was wondering was. Like, in what sense? Like, okay, like, I get that the Numenorians were, be they were bigger, and they, they had better weapons, I guess, and better armor, I guess, and there were a lot of them, I guess, though they're from this island, right? I mean, it's not like, I mean, how could they, so I'm thinking of the story of how, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the precursor of this later on, the story of how when, when our Pharazon shows up on the shores uh, to attack Sauron, and Sauron's whole army just runs away, Right, and Sauron himself just comes and gives and and surrenders. Like, what is it about the Numenorean army that so utterly overwhelmed that like no one else would even stand against them? I mean, it can't be that they're so numerous 
they can't be more numerous than an army that Sauron would have put in the field. I mean, I just can't believe that. From the island of Numenor, even with conscripts from the shores of Middle-earth, I don't buy it. Sauron, obviously, could have conscripted as many people as the Numenorians, so it can't be the weight of numbers. What then was it? <sighs> Better armor and weapons? I mean, okay, maybe their armor was super awesome, and maybe they're... I mean, they had these awesome steel bows we learn in Unfinished Tales, and and they, they you know, uh, maybe their swords were super cool, but how could you tell that from a distance? I mean... If you're looking at an army with, but I just, it, it, and I just, it, it never seemed quite enough. I, I could never fully wrap my own imagination around what would make their armies so amazing and so powerful that no one would even dare to stand up to them, to, to engage them in battle. Um, what we will see here, and uh, Jordan, I think you rightly touch on, you can see the hint of it right here in this first outline, the with thunder business. He imagines the technological advancement of the Numenorians, and they are going to have something like what we would call modern weapons. They are going to have artillery fire, um, and it, it, is the, uh, it is the cannon fire and the artillery of the Numenorians that they're going to be bringing to bear against Valinor uh, in their battle. And that, to me, um, seems entirely to, uh, um, to explain how this could be, right? Uh, a few artillery rounds shot into the middle of, uh, you know, like the hillmen who are, uh, who have been armed and mustered, uh, by, uh, uh, by Sauron, that, that would do the trick. The running, the everybody running away and nobody uh, even daring to stand up against them. Heck, the army wouldn't even have had to land on the shore, right? They could fire from their ships and pretty much solve the problem, right? So, so yeah, that would pretty much that would pretty much um, uh, do it for me. Brian Dimmick says this would be more evidence of their fall in Tolkien's mind, having seen World War One. Yes, I agree that it does seem very unlikely uh, that having artillery uh, was uh, a sign of. A good thing on the Numenorean's part. Uh, uh, agreed, very much. Um, and uh, Cecilia, I love your comment. Uh, it, it, yes, the Numenorians do have some gall to come against the gods uh, with cannons. You know, with their little thunder. Uh, when uh, you know, the, to 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 come against you know the land of Manway, the god of 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 of, of thunder, right? The, the god of the air. Yeah, yeah. No, it does It does really emphasize... The fact that he uses that phrase with thunder does, I think, really emphasize the, um, um, the irony uh, and the kind of the pitiful irony of them coming up against uh, the Valar there. Not to mention the, the, uh, the, the open disrespect, right? You know, as if they're, they think they, they, they can turn the weapons of the Valar against them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Tom Hillman points out that it's uh, uh, in this he's doing the opposite of Milton. Um, uh, Milton's Satan in Paradise in Milton's uh, Paradise Lost uh, says that it was it was the thunder that got that made God the greater. Right? God had the power of thunder and could basically overwhelm uh, Satan uh, and his forces in battle, which we get in some detail in Canto Six of Paradise Lost, and. Um, so yeah, yeah, because God can thunder, that makes him the greatest. Uh, and so yeah, it, it, Tolkien is very, very much taking a different uh, a different stance here. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, so let's keep going. So this is element two, 
the existence of Thu and his seduction of the Numenorians and and bringing about the blasphemous worship of Morgoth and their rebellion against the Valar. Element number three. The gods therefore sundered Valinor from the earth, and an awful rift appeared down which the water poured and the armament of Atalante was drowned. They globed the whole earth so that the, however far a man sailed, he could never again reach the west, but came back to his starting point. Thus new lands came into being beneath the old world, and the east and west were bent back, and water flowed all over the round earth's surface, and there was a time of flood. But Atalante, being near the rift, was utterly thrown down and submerged. The remnant of, struck out at time of writing, Numen, the Lian Numen, the Numenorians, in their ships flee east and land upon Middle-earth. Struck out, Morgoth induces many to believe that this is a natural cataclysm. Okay, so, um, yes, Josh, the gods sundered Valinor, not Iluvatar. So we see that it is not an original part of this story that the gods stepped back and did nothing and Iluvatar steps in and does this unilaterally. This is, this is in this original outline, it's the Valar themselves that do that. That, yes, they had the power to remake Arda and cause the flood. Um, does that sound to you possibly like an echo of the Noahic flood? Yep, me too. Um, but anyway, uh, this, so this is how it this is how it works, right? Okay, so um, uh, this is a central element, and we see. Uh, and if anything, this seems to be. If I had to point to one of the four elements I'm going to talk to, if I had to point to one which seems to be the central element, the original element of the Numenor story, it would be this. It would be the 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 falling and the making of the round world. Um, Christopher describes how at the beginning of the outline is that diagram that Tolkien made, right? The diagram of the flat earth that was, right? The old world, which is the flat, which is, which is, which is, which is the flat earth. And then the globe, which is now down beneath it. And the, the old world still exists, but it's now like tangential to the world, right? And you can't, get that you can't go straight anymore you go down so that any travel is now falling again right you're not you can't any longer go straight out towards the god the gods you can only go down towards the bottom of the world right that's all you can now do um so okay so this 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 business of the turn the transformation of the world from a flat world to a round world uh and the re- the the remaining existence of the old world existing in some sense on a kind of a plane above the old world um that or of, of the new round world uh that is a huge element of uh, of the old of the old story. Um, yes, Kate, you're right to point out he's still using the word gods uh, to refer to the Valar. He's not made that shift where he just calls them the Valar and doesn't call them gods anymore. Um, that He's been doing that, calling them gods, that is, from the beginning of the Book of Lost Tales. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And good, Josiah, I agree. Really interesting that there is no faithful remnant that hung back. Absolutely. And that's the last thing um, that I want to look at. We don't get the story. Notice that the outline contained no hint of the division between the faithful and the king's men, right? The strife in Numenor and those who remained true. We don't get any of that. 
we just get the Numenorians collectively, their king and queen and the Numenorian people collectively turning against, you know, going bad, falling and turning against the Valar. Um, and then the entire land of Atalante sinking. And then finally, at the very end, we get the fourth element, um, that is the, 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 the first gropings toward the last alliance. The longing of the Numenorians, their longing for life on Earth, their ship burials, and their great tombs, some evil and some good. Many of the good sit upon the west shore. These also seek out the fading elves. Howe, struck out at time of writing, Agildor, changed to Amroth, wrestled with Thu and drove him to the center of the earth and the iron forest. There you go. There's the beginning of the last alliance. Okay, so so again, what are our elements here? The sur- there are survivors. First, there are survivors of Numenor, right? Some do survive Numenor and end up in Middle Earth, and their remnants continue. Now, um, this is uh, not like what we get later on. Again, remember, we don't have the division between the King's Men and the Faithful, right? We don't have, like, the good Numenorians and the bad Numenorians already pre downfall, right? We just have the Numenorians, and they're all, they've all fallen. Right, they've all fallen, and as soon as, and but some of them survive. Some of those fallen Numenorians survive. Now that doesn't mean they're wholly evil. What he seems to be emphasizing when he says some evil, some good, is although you know, like the people of Numenor fell into evil and and, and stuff, they weren't all bad. Right, some of them were were good. So it doesn't seem like he's saying, and some of those were evil. It seems like the emphasis is the other way around, and some of them were actually good. Right. Um, but that longing, the fall of Numenor is still in their hearts, right? They're still longing for life on Earth. They're still focused on burials and tombs, right? Um, that In Middle-earth, mind, right? That's the, the, the prime characteristic that we're given to describe the culture of the Numenorians in Middle-earth. They're longing for extended life and their focus on burials and tombs. Um, but, but some of them are good. And some of the good ones are on the West Shore. You know, many of the good ones are on the West Shore. And some of those also seek out the elves. Okay, so there are still elves. They're fading, but they're still there, right? And one of the Numenorians, Amroth, wrestled with Thu and drove him to the center of the earth. Now... First of all, I assume, by the way, that when he says the center of the earth, he doesn't mean the center of the earth in the Dantean sense. Um, uh, that is Dante in Parada in not Paradise Lost. That's Milton. Dante in the Divine Comedy in 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 Inferno describes Satan as being imprisoned at the very center of the earth. Uh, so hell in Dante's version, hell is the concavity that's made when Satan falls and crashes into the earth, not because. Uh, Satan struck the earth with uh, concussive force and made a dent in it, but rather in this lovely description. It's the hole that's made because earth shrank away in horror from Satan as he was descending. Uh, I, I absolutely love that that touch by Dante. Anyway, so so the earth has kind of shriveled back from Satan, but there he is, and he's at the very center, the gravitational center of the earth is Satan. Um, uh, in fact, the precise uh, gravitational center of the Earth in Dante's Inferno 
is Satan's genitalia. Anyway, um, and exactly, Josh, that's how Mount, Mount Purgatory comes about, because when, when the Earth shrinks down away from Satan on one side of the globe, it pops out uh, uh, on the other side into Mount Purgatory. Uh, and so in that way, from the beginning, conceptually, Purgatory is the inverse of hell. So beautiful. Boy, Dante's, uh, I can't even say enough about how gorgeous Dante's uh, construction is. Um, anyway, okay, so the... Uh, um, the, 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 the center, by the center of the earth, I don't think he means down in the center of the earth in that way. Um, but rather he drives him to the center of the earth, meaning to a place in the middle of the great lands. Um, and, uh, that place is the iron forest. And several of you are very interested, uh, in the iron forest, um, you know that it's a uh, it's a very and Roy is saying how it's it's, it's a very evocative uh, uh, name, uh, certainly. Um, uh, agreed, agreed. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Arthur is recalling that both um, Angband is connected both with hell, which so and this sounds like Thu is being imprisoned here. Um, uh, but also with iron, right? It was it was the hells of iron is what is what Angband meant. Um, so, uh, uh, is it the same? No, no. I, I think it's definitely not the same. Um, and I feel pretty confident. But remember when he wrote this, right? Uh, nineteen thirty-six. Christopher Tolkien's thinking. Nineteen thirty-six. Um, he's already written the Hobbit. He's already got through the Necromancer in a forest in the middle of this in the center of the earth. Right in a dark forest in the center of the earth, it's Mirkwood. The Iron Forest is Mirkwood, right? Um, I mean, I think that that identity is is already pretty clear uh, at this point. Um, so uh, yeah, Chuck is asking, wasn't wasn't Amroth the lover of 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 Nimrodel here? Uh, yeah, yeah, Amroth um, Amroth was was the lover of of Nimrodel. Amroth has a really fascinating uh, history. Uh, in Tolkien's mind, um, I had totally forgotten. I was, you know, when I was rereading this, uh, uh, preparing for for class tonight, I I I came, I, I had completely forgotten that Amroth was in here. Um, you know, Tolkien had stories about Amroth, um, who's like the king of Lorien before Galadriel and Celeborn came, and um, and you know, he's the one that Karen Amroth is named after the hill. And uh, so anyway, so there's this like whole backstory for him, but his story is like sort of never the only one that's ever told is the bit about him and Nimrodel uh, in the poem. Um, And uh, but now we see actually, no, no, no. The story of Amroth goes back further still. Right. This is a name or a concept that's been kind of uh, kind of kicking around. So, yeah, James, I think this is clearly Tolkien recycling the name or rather he's going to later on recycle the name. Um, Originally, this later Numenorean hero or this hero of Numenorean descent um, who rose up and opposed through and wrestled with him and imprisoned him um, or at least drove him out was Agaldor and then he changes quickly that to Amroth and of course as we're going to see he's going to change Amroth and before too long Amroth is going to become Elendil but uh, uh, but yet uh, Tolkien almost never forgets a name, um, and rarely sets it aside. Sets a name aside entirely. Uh, so Amroth, the name gets recycled later on when he wants. But uh, poor Amroth, you know, is a name that was in Tolkien's mind for a long time and keeps coming back. 
but uh, never really gets a really central uh, place. Anyway, um, okay, good, good, <laughs> good. All right, so um, so th- those are the four elements that I would identify that just jump out to me as the most important in this early outline. Um, so we got the idea of the falling, right? Thu and how the fall comes about, right? So the, the temptation of Thu and the rebellion against the gods, uh, the, the flat world made round as a consequence of the fall, um, and as a making permanent of the ban of the Numenorians that they can't come to the Undying Lands. And then finally, the story of the Last Alliance, that eventually from the Numenorians comes one who will rise up and rebel against Thu, so that in a sense the story of Numenor is not actually intended just to end in tragedy. It doesn't just end on a down note, right? It ends with the fact that hope for Middle-earth is born out of Numenor, right? That seems to me an essential element of the story from the very, very beginning. And James, of course, you're right. The existence of the straight path as part of the world made round uh, definitely uh, part of that, that, uh, a, a core part of that third element that I was describing. Okay, with that in mind, let's start looking at a few uh, of the passages from the first narrative uh, that he writes. And I'm obviously not going to finish everything I wanted to talk about tonight, but that's okay. We've got plenty of time, lots of time, um, and we're going to keep talking. So next time we'll finish up talking about the fall of Numenor and start the Lost Road. But let's keep going anyway. Okay, so here's the prose, the narrative. Oh, it was prose before, but the full narrative version. But the Numenorians tarried not long yet in Middle-earth, for their hearts hungered ever westward for the undying bliss of Valinor, and they were restless and pursued with desire even at the height of their glory. Okay, so so tarried not yet not long yet in Middle-earth is in the context of saying the Numenorians have become great mariners, right, and they explore everywhere, and they've gone back to visit Middle-earth, but they're not staying there, right? So the, the mind of the Numenorians was not focused on colonizing Middle-earth, which it might well have been, right? But that's not, that's not their deal, right? Their deal is they're hungering ever westward for the undying bliss of Valinor. So we see at the, in this first full version of the story the core of the Numenorean experience, right? The core of the Numenorean story is their longing, their hungering for the undying bliss and the restlessness which is engendered by this longing, right? But the gods forbade them to sail beyond the lonely isle and would not permit any save their kings once in each life before he was crowned to land in Valinor. So that's interesting, right? The kings of Numenor did get to go to Valinor once, Right before their crowning, it was apparently like a ritual thing, and yes, Arthur, they can get to the Lonely Isle, right? So that's a that's a that's a major difference, right? We do have sort of closer, so they're able to come closer, even to get a taste of the Undying Land, right? But they can't; most of them can't go, and not even the kings can stay, for they were mortal men, and it was not in the power and right of Manway to alter their fate. Thus, though the people were long-lived, since their land was more lie than other lands to Valinor, and many had looked long on the radiance of the gods that came faintly to tall Arisea, they remained mortal, even their kings, the, that is, the ones who went to Valinor, and their span brief in the eyes of the Eldar. And they murmured against this decree, and a great discontent grew among them, and their masters of lore sought unceasingly for the secrets that should prolong their lives, and they sent spies to seek these in Valinor, and the gods were angered. Okay. 
um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I find the idea of them sending spies, Josh, kind of mind blowing too, <laughs> right? Yeah, they they sent spies. I don't know what kind of spies, James. Uh, maybe animals. Maybe they sent birds that they could talk to, and maybe they. I, I don't know. Did they sneak? You know, did they go to the to, to Tol Arisea and some of the Numenorians stayed behind and like dressed in black and wore masks and like paddled little dinghies across to Valinor and sneaked over to spy out the land? I don't know. Um, I I no clue how they spent how they sent spies. Um, uh, Carita suspects cats. Uh, that's possible. That could be part of the the history, the long history of devious wickedness uh, that cats have been. Uh, um, uh, 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 a part of in Tolkien's world. But anyway. Um, okay, so yeah, that's all really interesting stuff. I would point out that, notice the bigger picture here. The longevity of the Numenorians is derivative of their proximity to the undying lands, right? So the length of life that they have is, in fact, a side effect of their getting to be close. They live longer than the men of, of Middle-earth, not because they've been gifted with long life, but as a natural consequence of visiting Tol Arisea and getting, even from afar, the light of Valinor shining upon them, right? Um, this lengthens their lives and gives them this, uh, this blessing, right? Um, so if you're thinking in Akalabeth terms, remember the debate in the Akalabeth that says it is not the lands that make the undying, you know, it's not the lands that make people undying, it's the undying who dwell there that bless the lands. You're mistaken, O Numenorians, right? Um, no, they weren't. <laughs> not, not originally, right? In this original story, there is something, in fact, special about the lands. Um, because, yes, it's, the elves aren't immortal because they live in the undying lands. That's still true. That's just their fate. But the Undying Lands do seem to have this... In, they do clearly have an influence on the men um, because of the blessing of the gods who live there. So would they actually become Undying if they made it? If they succeeded in their rebellion and succeeded in, like, colonizing Valinor? Would they have become immortal? I doubt it. Um, I mean, it says that they were... Um, their fate couldn't be altered, right? They remained mortal. Um, so I don't think they would, in fact, become immortal, but they that seemed to be what they were shooting for. But again, it seems to be a not implausible goal on their part, right? Okay. Um, we have... The, so we get the fleshing out of the uh, of the Tempter, who now gets an, gets an extra name. Right, he's still called Thu occasionally, uh, but now he gets another name, which is Sur. And in time, it came to pass that Sur, whom the gnomes called Thu, came in the likeness of a great bird to Numenor and preached a message of deliverance. And he prophesied the second coming of Morgoth. But Morgoth did not come in person, but only in spirit and as a shadow upon the mind and heart, for the gods shut him beyond the walls of the world. But Sur spake to Angor the king and Istar his queen, and promised them undying life and lordship of the earth. And they believed him, and fell under the shadow, and the greatest part of the people of Numenor followed them. Angor raised a great temple to Morgoth in the midst of the land, and Sur dwelt there. 
Okay. Yes, the gnomes are the Noldor. That's the old name for the Noldor. They've been called that. They're called that in the Hobbit, even. Uh, yeah. So the gnomes. The the, the gnomes are, are just are just the Noldor. Um. Okay. So exactly, Carson. You see the 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 impact here. The bird thing. That's a really fascinating thing. So 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 Sur Thu comes to Numenor as tempter, right? As false prophet and tempter. Um. He's not taken in. There's not a rivalry. He just shows up, right, with apparently this mission to seduce the people of Numenor and to corrupt them, right? And he comes with signs and wonders, right? He comes in the likeness of a great bird and preaches a message of deliverance. And yes, the um, um, the great bird, Carson, I agree with you, is clearly a... Um, uh, is clearly a um, a significant thing, right? With the great eagles being the symbols of Manway. So he comes, and it would seem Carson initially aping, right? Um, the, you know, imitating or kind of playing off of the authority of Manway himself so that some doubt would presumably be um, created initially. Where is, is he a messenger of the gods? Right? Is this a messenger from Manway? Is this one of the eagles of the Lords of the West who has come to us with these tidings? Um, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Josh, Josh uh, calls him the anti-eagle. Right? It's like the Antichrist, but more, more avian. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like the Antichrist, but more feathers. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay. So that's um, that's it. Now Yana is uh, is wondering if uh, if he comes and he lands in the midst of the land, is that uh, um, is that suge- or no the raising of the temple in the midst of the land? Is that saying that it's 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 raised on the mental tarma, um, which is more extreme than we get earlier on? Um, we're kind of headed there, but not exactly because the mental tarma doesn't exist yet. That is, we don't have. There's been no evidence of the. Um, of the existence of the mental tarma yet, uh, we're getting there, but it's not there yet. So I don't think we're 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 quite we're quite there yet. But anyhow, um, we're 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 definitely moving there. Um, uh, yes, Rachel, I agree with you. Rachel Draper is noticing some of the phrasing uh, uh, and and even some of sort of the cadencing here, which is very like. Uh, biblical language, uh, direct echoes of of really of 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 King James language of of uh, of traditional English Bible language, signs and wonders, a message of deliverance. Um, yeah, there there, there is um, there is definitely a, a sort of a biblical turn uh, to some of this narrative. I I, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, okay. Now the, 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 the prose version of the uh, assault on the gods. Wherefore, the Numenorians made a great armament, and their might and skill had in those days become exceedingly great, and they had, moreover, the aid of Sur. So we have some sort of sorcery involved as well, presumably. The fleets of the Numenorians were like a great land of many islands, and their masts like a forest of mountain trees, and their banners like the streamers of a thunderstorm, and their sails were black. They still have sailing ships, not steamers, right? So there's that. And they moved slowly into the west, for all the winds were stilled, and the world lay silent in the fear of that time. And they passed Tol Erisea, and it is said that the elves mourned and grew sick, for the light of Valinor was cut off by the cloud of Numenorians. 
the cloud of the Numenorians. But Angor assailed the shores of the gods, and he cast bolts of thunder, and fire came upon the sides of Tenequitil. So the casting bolts of thunder and 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 fire is seems to suggest even more clearly uh, the uh, the artillery of the Numenorians at work there, um, Jordan, as you were perceiving way back in the outline. Um, and I also wonder about the cloud that cut off by the cloud of the Numenorians. I mean the. He's just compared the ships to islands and the masts to the forest on the islands, and their banners like the streamers of a thunderstorm, and their sails were black, so the sails are like a big black cloud with the streamers of a thunderstorm, uh, you know, hover, so a black cloud hovering over the island of forests. Um, it's possible um, that that's just what he's moving, f- uh, to, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm wondering, Josh, yeah, if there's some, if there's actual smoke involved there as well, if the cloud of the Numenorians is a more literal cloud, perhaps cutting off, cutting off the light, um, be, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, um, I'm, it's, it's, I'm not really sure, um, but, uh, but it seems to me very, very, plausible. Um, yeah, Yana's asking if this is a metaphorical cloud. I don't think there are aircraft here, Yana. Um, we do hear about aircraft later on, but every time we hear about aircraft, it's in the post-downfall era, when the when the Numenorean remnants are living in Middle-earth. Um, so they are going to make, um, they are going to, they are going to um, have flying vehicles, but we don't have any evidence that they, that they have them yet. Um, and yeah, Kimber, that's a great observation. Kimber is noticing how the, the conflict between the Numenorians and the gods is made to sound like a battle between gods, not between men and gods. The whole casting bolts of thunder thing sounds very Zeus-like, doesn't it, Kimber? I mean, it, sound, it does sound like they're fighting the gods with the weapons of the gods themselves. Um, and yeah, Tom Hillman and uh, also... Joyce, Sturgill, we're also both thinking of the, the darkness that comes from Mordor, right? The, the, the dawnless day uh, in, in The Return of the King um, and how the, uh, the, the, the encroachment of the Numenorean fleet uh, is, is described in that same kind of way. Um, yeah, yeah, good. And the survivors. But Numenor being nigh upon the east to the great rift, was utterly thrown down and overwhelmed in sea, and its glory perished. But a remnant of the Numenorians escaped the ruin in this manner, partly by the device of Angor, that is the king, and partly by of their own will, because they still they revered still the lords of the west and mistrusted Sur, many had abode in ships upon the east coast of their land, lest the issue of war be evil. Wherefore, protected for a while by the land, they avoided the draught of the sea, and a great wind arose, blowing from the gap, and they sped east and came at length to the shores of Middle-earth in the days of ruin. There they became lords and kings of men, and some were evil, and some were of good will. But all alike were filled with desire of long life upon earth, and the thought of death was heavy upon them, and their feet were turned east, but their hearts were westward." And they built mightier houses for their dead than for their living, and endowed their buried kings with unavailing treasure. I love that sentence. And endowed their buried kings with unavailing treasure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
unavailing treasure uh, is just a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful phrase. It would be a you know a good name for a like a mutual fund or something. But anyway, um, okay, so the survivors, right? Um, Notice we, we were looking before at how, you know, the survivors of Numenor, we didn't have the clear faithful versus king's men thing. In the narrative version, we get a little bit more of that, right? We do hear that some of the, most of the Numenorians um, side with the king and worship Morgoth uh, along with Sur, but not all of them do, and some of them remained faithful uh, to, you know, their friends, the, 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 the elves. We get a little bit of that. Right, but we don't get any clear sense of the sort of the, the 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 strife among them. We don't get really the sort of the political lines sharply drawn there. But more importantly, that doesn't really play a major um, role in the aftermath. Um, the those who survive the downfall of Numenor, who sail off, for, you know, in ships from the downfall of Numenor, are part and part, right? Some of them seem to be shirkers who were hiding from the war um, and not, you know, not, not participating in the war uh, because they were, uh, they, were, they were faithful. They still revered the Lords of the West and mistrusted Sewer. Um, but some of them are there for policy reasons. It appears that the King of Numenor has deliberately left behind because he knows he might lose. Right, that's kind of interesting in itself. Uh, in other words, notice one small one conclusion I would draw from this. It seems like a big conclusion to draw um, from this small thing, but I think there's other evidence besides this. Notice, pride is not the overwhelming error of the Numenorians in this early version. I mean, yeah, you kind of have to be a little bit on the arrogant side to attack the gods. Not saying that, but but it's not the distinguishing feature. Um, the overwhelming and blind arrogance that we see in our Pharaohs on the Golden eventually down the road is not something that we see in King Angor of Numenor in this first version. King Angor of Numenor did go to rebel against the gods. He was convinced that that was the right thing to do, right? And he was now worshipping Morgoth, um, and he was trying to seize immortality and all that, but he thought he might lose, Right? And so, therefore, he left some people behind who would survive just in case they lost and there were reprisals against Numenor, right, that they could take off. So that in itself, I think, um, is, uh, is, is really interesting. Um, and this means that those who sail away before the wind in their ships are not all good guys. Right? This is not the, the remnant of Numenor, the only faithful. This is not like Noah, right? I mean, there's, there, there's a Noah element in Elendil as he's preserved in the later stories, right? You know, the, the idea of like that one faithful house um, who still worshiped the Lord in the midst of an unbelieving and violent land, uh, and, you know, God preserved them and puts them on a ship and, and, and saves them while the rest of the land is drowned. I mean, there's there's definitely a kind of a Noah undercurrent in the Elendil story, right? His house is, the is you know, sort of the last faithful house in Numenor, and his house alone um, are saved. Um, so we don't get that. That's not part of the story. That's it, it, The story doesn't yet have that shape. Both good guys and bad guys 
are saved in the end, right? Um, some of them survive. And so that whole, what we saw in the outline, some of them were evil and some of them were good, is is true not just of those who are in Middle-earth later on, down the road, generations later, but even in that first generation that were born before the wind and uh, brought to Middle-earth and saved. Um, so that, I think, is another really fascinating thing. But notice also where what happens when they get to Middle-earth, right? All of them. What happens when they go? And this is not notice. It's not just like, and the bad guys when they got to Middle Earth continue to do bad things, right? All the Numenorians. What is Numenorian culture in Middle Earth like? Um, some were evil and some were of goodwill, but all alike were filled with the desire of long life upon Earth, and the thought of death was heavy upon them, and their feet were turned east, but their hearts were westward, and they built mightier houses for their dead than for their living. Now, you'll remember in the appendix of The Lord of the Rings that we hear that eventually, when Gondor reaches the peak of its power, it too starts to fall in this way, right? Um, We hear that the Gondorian, the post-Numenorian Gondorian culture also began to count ancestors uh, more dearer than sons and to build uh, uh, more and more elaborate tombs. But that's not... In the later versions, that's a re... That's a repeat, right? It's a reprise of the Numenorean story. The story of the rise and fall of Gondor is in some ways like an echo, like a repetition um, of the Numenorean story. That's not what we get here, right? From the beginning, the... um, that you know the phrase Numenorians in exile is not used, um, but the, the 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 Numenorian culture that arises in Middle Earth is from the beginning focused on is, is from the beginning a mortuary culture, right? Um, the thought of death is heavy upon them, and they build great tombs, and they're focused. And we saw that in the outline, right? Um, so any greatness that emerges from the Numenorians in Middle Earth emerges out of a culture which is still corrupt, which is still twisted, which is still in a post-fallen state. Um, we don't get this kind of rebirth that we get through Elendil uh, uh, and the other faithful in Gondor and Arnor later on. We just get a recapitulation, a continuation of the same sort of sorry moral state that the Numenorians were in, in Middle-earth. And out of that sorry state comes the Last Alliance, right? So the shape of that story is quite different. Um, more on this. the land we, we get some of their actual mythology, which is really kind of cool. Wherefore, the kingdoms upon the west shores of the Old World became a place of tombs and filled with ghosts. And in the fantasy of their hearts, and the confusion of legends, half forgotten concerning that which had been, they made for their, for their thought a land of shades, filled with the wraiths of the things of mortal earth. And many deemed this land was in the west, and ruled by the gods, and in shadow, and in shadow the dead, bearing the shadows of their possessions, should come there, who could no longer find the true west in body." For which reason, in after days, many of their descendants, or men taught by them, buried their dead in ships, and sent them in pomp upon the sea by the west coasts of the old world. Really cool, right? Really interesting stuff. So we get the corruption, eventually, of the 
understanding of the Numenorians, right? So the Numenorian, the post-Numenor Numenorian culture um, forgets about the true West. Their hearts are still focused on the West. Their desire is still for long life. Um, they're still kind of d obsessed with death and the attempt to prevent death. But they've forgotten the truth about the undying lands in the West. And so they identify the West as the land of desire, the place where you can go, but now only the dead can go there, right? It's now a land of shades. And in shadow, the dead can come there. The dead bearing the shadows of their possessions can come there, who can no longer find the true West in, in the body. You can't get to the true West anymore, right? Um, the world is now round. It's not possible. To, but, but there is a place where ghosts can go. And this is, this, he explains, is where the, um, the practice of burial ships, right? Sending, uh, sending the dead out in ships surrounded by their goods, because remember, the dead can bear the shadows of their possessions, according to this myth, right? That's why you send them with, uh, with all their swag in the boat. Uh, they go out on these funeral ships. Um, does this mean they become Vikings? Kimber is asking, and Arthur is asking. Uh, no, not exactly. Um, I would say it a little differently. Remember, it's uh, their descendants or men taught by them, right? What this shows is that the tradition in Norse culture of doing this is derived from the Numenorians, right? Um, what it shows, what he's doing here is establishing an explicit connection between the Numenorians of Middle-earth, the after-history of the Numenorians of Middle-earth, and our history, right? So we're seeing how now this age is transitioning into the, uh, the, the, the world of the Dominion of Men, right? The world that we know. Um, okay, so... Uh, Okay, so that's pretty cool. But again, you see, see, see. Going back to what I was saying at the beginning, see what what I mean about the radical rewriting of the end of the mythology that he did, right? And again, that radical thing ultimately is the the world made round, right? And the survival of the world in the straight path. Um, originally, you just had the world continuing, right, and transitioning from the world of elves to the world of men, right? The dominion of men comes in. Um, now we have a radical break, right? That moment of transition is is removed and it's given a completely different cause. Now it's because of men themselves, right? And the fall of the Numenorians, which precipitates the separation. So now it's not just that the, the gods and the elves withdraw into the West and kind of leave men to their own affairs in the Great Lands, which is kind of where we were at the end of the Silmarillion material previously, now there's an absolute break, right? Now the undying lands are taken away entirely and utterly removed, so that now the idea of the dominion of men is still there, right? But it's been radically altered. Now the world has been completely reshaped. So the idea of... It's not just the idea of how we got to where we are from there has changed, as I was saying at the beginning, but the idea of what the now is, right? How radically... Um, the present day differs, the modern world differs from the, the elder days, um, is, has been greatly changed in Tolkien's mind, right? This, this, is, this is sort of the big shift that's, um, 
that's come in. Okay. Um, all right. Sorry, I'm looking ahead to see how many I think. Okay, two more. Two more, and we'll do them quickly, because they're on this subject of the of the division of the world here. For the old line of the world remained in the mind of the gods and in the memory of the world as a shape and a plan that has been changed but endures. Okay, so the old flat world remains in the mind of the gods and in the memory of the world as a shape and a plan that has been changed but endures. That's a fascinating sentence. And it has been likened to a plane of air or to a straight vision that bends not to the hidden curving of the earth or to a level bridge that rises imperceptibly imperceptibly but surely above the heavy air of the earth. And of old, many of the Numenorians could see or half see the true path, the paths to the true west, and believed that at times from a high place they could descry the peaks of Teniquitil at the end of the straight road high above the world. This is why the Numenorians became tower builders in Middle-earth, right? They built towers because if you could get up high enough, you could see afar in the distance down the true road into the true west, right? Some people at some times could see this. And notice it doesn't say just the faithful or anything like that. This is a Numenorean thing, right? So they become tower builders and they build uh, they, they build the hopes in order to hope to see it, right? But of course, being the Numenorians and still fallen and still kind of the same way that they were, they're not content with merely trying to look down it. Um, they want to try to sail on it, right? But But upon the straight road, only the gods and the vanished elves could walk or such as the gods summoned of the fading elves of the round earth, who became diminished in substance as men usurped the sun. So the fading of the elves and their diminishing in substance, becoming either invisible or actually diminutive, um, which is something that he had talked about in the early mythology, is still there as a possibility. Some elves are still here in the round world, right? But they're actually diminishing and fading. But they can go, if they're summoned by the gods, they can go uh, on the straight road. For the plane of the gods, being straight, whereas the surface of the world was bent, and the seas that lay upon it, and the heavy airs that lay above. So we've got the round earth, and the oceans on top of the earth, and the air surrounding the globe of the earth, right? But above all those things is the plane of the gods, right? It cuts through the air of breath and flight, and traversed Ilmen, the outer air beyond the atmosphere, Right, in which no flesh can endure. And it is said that even those of the Numenorians of old who had the straight vision didn't comprehend this. They didn't get the fact that they were on a round world and the straight plane went out. They didn't understand. So they tried to devise ships that would rise above the waters of the world and hold to the imagined seas, but they achieved only ships that would sail in the air of breath. Can I just say I love that really dismissive thing? You know, to hear most people talk, you'd think that like the devising of flying machines was a big deal, right? Like air travel is some kind of major accomplishment that like does really good things. I love Tolkien's dismissive, but they achieved only ships that would sail in the air of breath. I mean, no big deal, right? I mean, what a, what a, what a, what a paltry achievement and a, and a horrible disappointment. Um, okay. So, uh, um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, Thomas is surprised that Tolkien would uh, sort of dabble in writing about aircraft. Uh, yeah, he does a little bit, but not 
that much, <laughs> right? Only the, he doesn't dwell on it. Uh, and as Christopher Tolkien points out, this is the these these references in this uh, in this chapter are the only references to flying machines that Tolkien will ever make in any of his writings ever in his entire life. Uh, so this is it. Um, but uh, but there we go. Um, uh, Yana, I don't know if they're heavier or lighter than air. I mean, I don't know if these are if these are if these are zeppelins or if they're um, uh, or if they're uh, uh, or dirigibles. I prefer the word dirigible because it's a funnier word. Uh, but anyway, I don't know if they're dirigibles or if they're uh, or if they're airplanes or what. But um, um, uh, but I don't know. Anyway. Um, so, uh, okay, don't forget Christopher Tolkien himself served in the Royal Air Force in World War II. Um, so there's, there's some, some sort of extra kind of irony there. Um, but uh, yeah, Tom Hillman thinks that the flying machines actually strengthen the argument for thunder as artillery. Yeah, it, it does suggest that they have not lost all of their technological, uh, advancement when they go to Middle Earth. Um, Okay. All right, so we have. So, by the way, thinking of the Numenorians as tower builders and how you could, from the top of the tower, you could just you could just see. Remember the hills, the the Emin Berain that, um, the 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 tower where the last Palantir is, that Elendil built on the shores of the sea, out in the Tower Hills to the west of the Shire, um, and the that the Palantir that is set upon that tower, um, which is only kind of oriented out towards Tolerasea and it's not good for anything else. That concept of Elendil building a tower on the coast in order to look down the straight path is a remnant of this old idea. We can see it's still this this concept um, still um, still existed uh, in Tolkien's mind when he was writing that bit about Elendil. I think um, uh, Cecilia says, "What about Arendel ship? Well, that's an airship technically in that it flies. It's true, but it's not a flying machine. Is the main thing, and that's what Christopher Tolkien is talking about about flying machines. Um, Arendel ship is a ship that is set to sail in the in the in the sky by the Valar, which is a totally different thing. Um, he meant he meant the construction of of like flying machines. Like even Morgoth doesn't." do that or think of that uh the winged dragons are kind of the closest that he ever gets okay well there's more to say and especially i want to come back next time to um we'll start our next session um with uh uh, more look i want to i want to do some more pay some close attention to the developments of the last of the story of the last alliance that's the thing that kind of i think grows most in these early stages in the fall of Numenor. So go back and review the, the, the last Alliance stuff that we get in this chapter. And then we're going to start the lost road for next time. Okay. Um, thanks for joining me, everybody tonight. Uh, really fun, uh, first session here with you guys. And I look forward to next week. I think I'm going to be on the road again next week. So, um, please do be patient if my internet connection is not great. I really don't know what my internet connection is going to be next week. I'm going to do my best to make everything happen next week as normal. Um, please bear with me if I end up having to reschedule. I promise I'll reschedule as soon as possible. But, um, uh, but uh, yeah, if you do, uh, Mary, good question. If you have uh, other questions or comments, you can email uh, to me, and I might be able to come back and, and, and uh, address some of those things. Uh, in the next session as well. So yes, you can always do that. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Good night, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye!